Welcome to Basic Doctrine of the Bible. The teaching series within this podcast is a part of the Basic Discipleship Program. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Our hope is that this material will encourage you to have a great appreciation and respect for God's Word. Now, let's join today's lesson. Hey, welcome to Basic Doctrine of the Bible. We're in session eight. In this session, we're continuing our discussion on how we got the Bible, how we received God's Word. Contrary uh, to what some may think, the Bible did not descend from heaven with a black leather leather cover, um, pages edged in, in silver or gold, and ribbons in the middle, and maps in the back. Instead, God used a a process um, involving men, uh, many centuries, and uh, many geographical places and many events to give us this book we now call the Bible. And so we've talked about how the Bible was written originally, how it was preserved. Uh, Today we want to talk about, in this session, this idea of canonization. Canonization. Now, sadly, many Christians nowadays are ignorant concerning how we got the Bible. Know this, if we don't understand how the Lord sovereignly made his word available for us, we we won't have the appreciation for it that we should. Secondly, our naivety in this matter will make us less credible as witnesses for Christ. I know this, if you share the gospel regularly, you'll run into scoffers and skeptics. And such individuals will often hurl attacks at this book we call the Bible. So it's important for us to know how we got God's Word, this book called the Bible. How has it been delivered to us? Now, in this lesson on canonization, and I'll explain what that word means in a moment, we want to speak under two subject headings. Number one, we want to talk about how it happened, how it happened. So we believe that strong disciples are aware of how we got God's Word. And such an awareness gives them a greater appreciation for the Word, a greater love for the Word, but such awareness also makes them more credible. It gives them more credibility as they go out and they witness in a lost world. So let's talk, number one, about how canonization happened. And in doing this, I want to speak about a few ideas. First of all, Let's talk about canonization defined. Now, when I first mentioned that word, you might have thought, wow, did he stutter? What did he say? What was that word? Canonization. It's not a word we use on a regular basis, but it does represent something we should understand. A lot of people nowadays in the Christian faith are scared of big words. And certainly we don't want to use big words just for the purpose of impressing or trying to make ourselves sound smart. However, there are big words that help us in our Christian faith. Canonization is one of them. It describes the process whereby wherein men of old recognized what books should be in our Bible. Canonization. At root, it has this word canon. Not like a cannon that shoots cannonballs back in a civil war. This word cannon is a, is a word that was used to refer to something that served as a rule or a standard 
a rule or a standard. So you can think about a ruler, a yardstick, um, a measuring tape. That's the idea behind canon, something that, sh that serves as a rule or a standard. It was used in the ancient world to refer to a reed, a rod that was used as a measuring device. Now, now, what does this idea of a measuring device, a yardstick, a ruler, have to do with the Bible? Well, when we speak of canon, a rule or a standard, and when we speak of canonization, we're talking about, as one theologian has said, the process by which biblical books became recognized as authoritative in the Christian church and were eventually drawn together into a collection of books we call the Bible. So get this, Genesis through Revelation didn't just fall from the sky one day. Remember when we talked about the Bible was written, the Lord used different people at different times in different places in human history, writing different genres of literature to deliver the 66 books we have in the Bible. And then God preserved all of those books as they were copied throughout the ages. And then in time, there was this thing called canonization where, where the church recognized what books should be in the Bible. So before time began, we believe God determined to deliver his revelation of himself through the prophets and the apostles. And he established a, a human process by divine intervention called canonization, wherein the church would recognize what writing should be deemed as Holy Scripture. So canonization divine. So, so we're asking, first of all, first subject heading we're speaking about is, is how it happened. We've defined canonization. Secondly, we want to talk about the, the biblical witness for canonization. See, when we examine the pages of Scripture, we see examples of God's people recognizing writings that should be regarded as scripture. Now, we don't see the word canon or canonization in the Bible, but we see the activity. We, we see Jesus himself deeming, John, Luke 24, 44, Jesus deeming the Old Testament as being authoritative and as being the word of God. We see Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 18, putting the gospels on par with the Old Testament. Paul regarded Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being scripture. He was engaging in this thing called canonization. He, he did something similar in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, where Paul seemed to place his own writings on the same level as the law and the prophets. John, likewise, concluded his apocalypse, the revelation, with words that seem to indicate that he viewed the book of Revelation as holy writ scripture. You can see that in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. And I love the words of Peter as he concluded, as he wrote in his second letter, he, he spoke of Paul's writing in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And he said this, our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He's speaking of Holy Spirit inspiration. He speaks about these things in all his letters. And we have those letters recorded for us today. And then Peter says this, there are some matters that are hard to understand. And I would say, amen to that, Peter. There's some of Paul's writings. Have you read Romans that are hard to understand? 
And he said, the untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction. Listen, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. So notice how, Paul, how Peter talked about Paul's writings. He viewed them as scriptures. He compared them, held them on equal ground to, quote, the rest of the scriptures. So apparently during Peter's time, people had already started to regard Paul's writings as scripture, Bible, holy writ. The gears of canonization were already turning. The Bible gives witness to this process having taken place. So we know the early church started circulating copies of manuscripts even during New Testament times, while the New Testament was still being written, they started circulating copies of manuscripts that they regarded as Scripture. And the Gospels and Paul's writings were included in that number. So, so we see canonization. We're talking about first subject heading. How did it happen? We've defined canonization. We've seen how the Bible gives witness to this activity. Third, I want us to see that there are certain historical events that figure in to this process of canonization. So we know it started even in Bible times, but after the culmination of the church age, the canon was once for all formally established by church leaders. I mean, I really believe by the time John passed away, Matthew through Revelation was already being regarded as Scripture. But... The early church then, after the first century, had a process wherein they designated once and for all what books were to be regarded as Scripture and to make up the Bible. This happened through two means. First, we we see that certain books of the New Testament were regarded as Scripture by the writings of, listen, early church leaders. The the individuals we call after the apostles, we call them the church fathers. And we can read their writings. I I have a volume on the the church fathers and it contains many of their writings. It's good devotional reading. Uh, But but you can read in that volume and see that these, these guys after the first century were regarding our New Testament as the word of God. One has commented, Charles Ryrie has said, during this period, during the early church, All the New Testament books were cited in other writings and the church fathers recognized as canonical or as canon all 27 books of the New Testament. So we see that step in canonization. We know from writings, we can pull up these writings and see that that right after the age of the apostles, the church had already recognized the New Testament books we have as being Bible. But secondly, the church held in 397 AD a council, the Council of Carthage, and it officially recognized the books of the New Testament as being Scripture. So we can safely say that we now hold a book in our hand that that was regarded as Bible in the first century by the early church fathers and even in subsequent years through... A supernatural work of God, the Lord has intervened into human history and through this process called canonization, a rule or a standard, given us the Bible. So we're thankful that God in his providence 
has preserved scripture for us. And he gave the early church the wherewithal to notice what books should be included in this book we call the Bible. So now let's speak under a a second subject heading. We've talked about how it happened and we defined canonization. We talked about the biblical witness of canonization. And we talked about uh, historical events, church fathers and council of Carthage. Let's let's, secondly, I want to talk under this heading. Let's talk about some important questions. Because I just shared some good information with you. It gives you an idea of canonization and why we trust in this process. But inevitably, questions will arise. You know, if you were right in front of me right now, you may say, well, what about, or have you, have you thought about such and such? So, so, and I've even noticed unbelievers will challenge me with questions concerning this. So, because there's a lot in the university, there's a lot even in Hollywood and entertainment that challenges what I just taught. So let's look at three important questions. Number one, here's a question I have. How did people know what books should be included in the Bible? How did the early church arrive at their conclusions? I mean, Paul said the Gospels should be regarded as Scripture. What gives? How does Paul have the right to decide that? Peter said Paul's writing should be, in the, in the, should be regarded as Scripture. How can Peter decide that? Understand this. The process of canonization does not involve men deciding what books are of Scripture it involves them discerning or discovering what books should be regarded as Scripture. One is noted that canonization is not so much a process of deciding which books we want to include in the canon or the Bible, but rather a process of discovering which books belong there. See, as the church was established, and as epistles and gospels were read, believers and the apostles seek to discern which ones had influence of the Holy Spirit, which one, which ones received their contributions from the apostles, which ones presented teachings that were in alignment with that of Jesus, and which ones seemed to have the, the mark of the Holy Spirit, which ones seemed to be given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Over time, as as, as the Gospels and the Epistles were read in local congregation, uh, church members who were filled with the Holy Spirit began to give affirmation to which books seemed to be of God and from the Spirit. So know that this was ultimately the process. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I've read the early church fathers. I've read some of the supposed lost books of the Bible. I've read the Apocrypha. And indeed, I can say with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when I read this book, it seems that my heart burns within me. There's something qualitatively different here. It is a mark of the Holy Spirit and the influence of the apostles. So, So no, that's what we're talking about with canonization. It's not just some stuffy conference um, council with clergymen deciding, hmm, which books do we want in the Bible? No, this happened at the local church level with Holy Spirit believers discovering and discerning which books seem to have the mark of the Holy Spirit and the support of the apostles. So, so that's our first question. A second question we have, and I've broached the subject, would be this. What about the Apocrypha? Some folks express consternation 
over this group of books that certain professing Christians have added to the end of the Old Testament. These form a collection that is often called the Apocrypha. It contains a lot of uh, writings, teachings, history, prose from the years uh, between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 years. It's called the Apocrypha. That word means hidden, secretive, or concealed. And that title depicts the way in which those writings are of an uncertain origin and nature. So I have a Bible on my phone that I downloaded and I began to read it and I noticed it has the Apocrypha in it. And the Roman Catholic Church has used the Apocrypha for years. So many would ask, what about the Apocrypha? Who's to say that shouldn't be in our Bible? Well, it's important to note that the Apocrypha was made Scripture as a response by the Roman Catholic Church to some tension surrounding the Reformation. Before the time of the Reformation, the Apocrypha was not regarded typically as Scripture. So why was it added by the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation? Well, it was added because there are writings there that can be used to support some Catholic teachings that were called into question by the Reformation. So, so it was added in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church made a declaration to make the Apocrypha a part of the Bible. And so previously they had excluded these books from the Bible, but they added them in hopes to provide some uh, argument against Reformation teaching. It's important for us to realize those books should have never been in the Bible. They should have never been added. Why? Many of the books within the Apocrypha promote beliefs and behaviors that go against the grain of the rest of Scripture. For example, the book of Tobit promotes salvation by works. Tobit 2.9, it says, Almsgiving delivers from death and will purge away every sin. Those who perform deeds of charity and of righteousness will have fullness of life. And we know a works-based righteousness is clearly refuted by other parts of Scripture. Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 3. So as a result of such teaching that goes against Scripture, it seems that the book of Tobit, the Apocrypha, should uh, be relegated to where it was in the past, not a part of the Bible. In addition to uh, doctrine that goes against the rest of Scripture, the books within the Apocrypha also promote and call for uh, behaviors that are in clear opposition to the, the, the rest of Scripture and to the general Christian life. Did you know this? Things like black magic, suicide, assassination, prayers for the dead, and lying are all presented as justified practices within the Apocrypha. So that's another reason to discount it. A, a third reason would be that there are errors, geographical and historical, major historical and geographical errors within the Apocrypha. And so, so we should take the conclusion of the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. It proclaimed, the books commonly called Apocrypha 
not being of divine inspiration, and there, there's the test for canonization, believers filled with the Holy Spirit seek to discern whether or not books come from the Holy Spirit. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God. Now, I'll admit you can read some history there that may be helpful, but I agree with the statement here. They shouldn't be authoritative for the church of God. Remember early in this series, we talked about how God's word is authoritative. We would say that the, the, the Apocrypha is not. So they... Um, and so the, the Westminster Confession of Faith goes on and says they should not in any otherwise be approved or made use of than other human writing. So we view them, hey, they may be good for some history like any other human writing, kind of like how I look at the, um, at the, the early father's writings, but they're not scripture. They're not scripture. They shouldn't be a part of the canon. They weren't a part of the canon for over 1,500 years. They should not be a part of the canon today. Let's, let's ask one last question. What about so-called lost books of the New Testament? Now, you may be saying, Patrick, what are you talking about? Lost books of the New Testament. Never heard of any of those. Well, you could go to Barnes & Noble and go to the religion section. You'd probably find a book that, that contains lost books of the New Testament. Furthermore, you go to iTunes, you can go to a popular bookstore and find a book called The Da Vinci Code that would uh, base an entire story in which, uh, they're, in which the, the author uh, gives fiction that, that kind of presents this case for discrediting Jesus. You, you, you can see in pop culture through movies like that, books like that, there's other books, The Jesus Paper, and then there's uh, one called Holy Blood and Holy Grail that, that really aimed to discredit the person of Jesus and the gospel through, through uh, taking into account uh, witnesses from supposed lost books of the New Testament. There's one popular story that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he merely fainted, he was later revived, he married Mary Magdalene. They moved to France. They had children, modern-day France. And they had children, and his bloodline continues through a family. And that, that's presented in the Da Vinci Code. So, so there's all types of other works, and I, I've got a volume of them that people would consider, hey, it's a lost book to the New Testament. We would have the full picture of Jesus if we read these as well. The Gospel of Mary, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel of the infinite infancy of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Nicodemus, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of the Hebrews, the, the epistles of Jesus Christ, and Abgarus, king of Edessa, and various other letters exist. So some letters, some of these letters are genuine, and they, have, they were written by the apostles or people close to the apostles, and they're trustworthy for devotional literature and history. However, others are spurious, spurious and have been written by those who held the unorthodox, false teaching. Some, some, and so they shouldn't, obviously shouldn't be counted as Scripture. They go against what the apostles believed. It'd be little different than someone publishing a book today claiming to be a Christian, but then writing 
um, non-gospel truth or providing false teaching. Some of these books I've mentioned were wrote uh, by, um, I think you call it, we, you would say it's a pseudonymous author, someone who said, hey, I'm Paul writing to you, but it really wasn't Paul. They used Paul's name, or I'm Peter. They, they used the apostle's name. There was no way to verify whether it really came from the apostle, but they wrote using the apostle's name, knowing his apostolic authority in order to try to influence a congregation. At the end of the day, it's important for us to understand that, that such work should not be regarded as scripture. The, the, in the New Testament, we see biblical witness of canonization, we see amongst the early church fathers that early on, all 27 books were regarded as New Testament. And we can see from biblical witness, from historical survey, that the Lord devised a process wherein the early church discerned what books are worthy of the designation Scripture. Though there were many false writings and many even additional writings that aren't necessarily false, the church, the early church, recognized what qualified as Scripture. They, they used a litmus test, asking questions like, did the apostles have influence on this book? Does this book benefit the church? Is it in alignment with Jesus' teaching, apostolic teaching, and the gospel have churches used this book as scripture for benefit, for benefit? And so nowadays we hold a book in our hand called the Bible that is a product of divine intervention, inspiration, and providence. And God has given us his word for our benefit. And he, the maker of the heavens and the earth, has ordained a way for us to have this book in our hand. May we cherish it, live by it, and proclaim it for his glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for our lesson on basic doctrine of the Bible. Stay current with other episodes by subscribing to our podcast or visit us online at basicdiscipleship.net. If you have any questions about the materials presented in this lesson, or if you would like to give feedback, email us at info at basicdiscipleship.net. Thanks for listening.